1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of fight back from the week that was yet another report reveals Canada has failed to protect our vulnerable elders in long term care both before and during the pandemic researchers with the Royal Society of Canada confirm this country has the worst record for deaths in long term care in the Western world with 81% of COVID-19-related fatalities in that sector. According to the study, this stems from systemic and deeply institutionalized implicit attitudes about age and gender. This was a hot topic of discussion with our Zoomer squad on Monday. Libby Snymer was joined by Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media.
2: That's what this report does, I think, that's that's maybe a little bit different. It documents it with just agonizing detail how neglectful they have been in the face of
3: clear information that they ignored. Peter, do we need more reports? And and what do you think? What I find
4: uh, new about this report is, I mean, we all know, uh, you know, what what the problems are. Um, Anyone who's covered this sector for a while knows exactly what the problems are. Anyone who's visited these homes knows what the problems are. But this one is saying, um, look, we have a duty of care to these people. Are we going to decide... Um, that we're going to give them a level of care that just sort of gets by, that that covers their basic needs until they die? Or are we going to give them a level of care that we give to everyone else in society? And and that's the big question in, in this report. That's what this report is calling on.
3: One of the things this report and others have called for is the need for national standards. Would that solve it, Marissa? I think it's one piece of the puzzle. And
5: certainly, uh, there have been studies now in in the Covid era um, looking at what can what Canadians think on this subject. and And overwhelmingly, it's close to ninety percent say that they're in favor of you know bringing long-term care into the Canada Health Act, which would then necessitate national standards, and it would also create an environment of shared funding. And that is one of the missing pieces of the Canada Health Act, actually, and whether it's you bring it under the Canada Health Act or it's you establish its own act because you don't want to open up the CHA, okay, either way, you bring it into, to you know, federal jurisdiction to some extent insofar as they provide funding and there's a bit of a leadership role to set, to set national standards. I think that is one important element in trying to fix this system. But you also need to look at it from a holistic perspective. Um, it can't just be about the building. It can't just be about the institutions because only 5% of Canadians over the age of 65 are actually in long-term care homes. A lot of people can't even afford to go there. It's still a fairly expensive um, endeavor. It's not, I'm not even just talking about retirement homes. I mean, the, the government subsidized ones is still expensive, runs you two to $3,000 a month. Um, so we need to be looking at alternatives. We need to be looking at alternative housing solutions. We need to be investing in home care, of course. And this is something that CARP is on the record for is, is calling for national standards because because there shouldn't be a discrepancy in the care you receive based on your postal code.
3: I'd like to return to uh, another aspect of long-term care, and this this has really uh, been bothering a lot of our listeners since nursing homes opened up for visits for these very limited visits. And the requirements are for family members who want to see their loved ones are more stringent then for the people working in the care homes more closely, they have to have these tests every two weeks. Sometimes the test result hasn't come back in enough time to make the visit. And this, even though the visits are distant and everybody is wearing a mask and they're half an hour visits that do not recognize the caregiving roles of families. So many
5: family members are, are not just there to to have a chat with their loved one in these facilities, they often provide very direct hands-on care, whether that's supporting them um, in, in getting changed or, or helping them use a washroom, because we know that these homes are so uh, understaffed if a family feels that their loved ones needs are being neglected often they'll step in and and it's not exactly fair that 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 responsibility get passed to family caregivers but it is what it is and and many families feel the need to do that and have to do that um and so you know the government easing restrictions but making it so that they can't even so much as touch their loved one and, and can only visit them twice between negative tests and for only 30 minutes at a time, um, it may somewhat address the, the issue around isolation, though it's, it's by no means a sufficient amount of time to spend with a loved one. But in no way does it support a family member from being able to care for their loved ones in those facilities.
1: Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and David Kravitz, VP at Zoomer Media, our Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. So have you been to visit a loved one in long-term care since the COVID-19 lockdown ended? If yes... How do you feel about all the restrictions around those visits, as we just heard in the discussion with our Zoomer squad? There was a growing outcry about the restrictions on visiting loved ones in long-term care and the failure to recognize family members as caregivers. Joining Libby on Tuesday to discuss, Dr. Doris Grinspun chief executive officer of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario.
6: It strikes me as discrimination, quite frankly, because you and I can babble with whoever we want, right? And we are not asked to do a test every 14 days, as you mentioned. And here we go. Uh, I know of, of residents that are in a single room I know of uh, several family members that they are self-isolated just so they can go and visit their loved ones, and yet they are not allowed to go and visit. And in the same home, for example, if you have a paid uh, caregiver, that person is allowed in. So um, we don't see the evidence behind of the policy that is being implemented by some of the homes. Uh, We know that Dr. Williams did say that one visitor um, at a time, but at the end, he also said it's up to the home what the home does, and in fact, every single nursing home is doing something different, and none of this is benefiting the residents nor the families because, as you know, uh, people go to a nursing home at a very late age, and they're, they're Months and years are counted, and we, are, uh, we feel we are stealing their time behind, behind, beneath them. You
3: are absolutely right. I mean, the latest report, the Royal Society report, you know, just called out ageism, and uh, I know there are other people in the field, and they're saying, you know, nobody asked the residents what they want, and this, uh, this could increase another pandemic of loneliness, well,
6: it's uh, already doing it. Uh, we know that Ontario uh, is double the rate of overall death in nursing homes. OECD uh, reports 40% of the casualties of coronavirus were in nursing homes. We have 80% in Ontario. We are leading the pack. Not something we should be proud about. So we are asking uh, the Premier to intervene. In fact, I just sent last night, and they responded very quickly to me from the premier's office. Uh, I'm asking the premier to intervene on several situations where we know that uh, the resident doesn't have a long time to live, and that the family still is being blocked from from visiting. It, it's 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 ageism, is discrimination, and more than anything else, is inhumane quite frankly.
3: Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, you just wonder what the reasons behind this are. Are they just trying to, you know, cover their you-know-whats, or they're just not organized for it? Uh, Do you have a theory, Doris?
6: I think in part has to do with the leadership of the home. Depending if the leadership is strong, they're more resourceful on how to go about the visits. Um, in part, is some say, as you mentioned, um, are they trying to cover something up so families will not see? We hope that that's not the case. I think, all in all, the sector is very afraid of moving into a, an outbreak, and that's understandable. Uh, we also need to understand that... You know, people don't live for a long time in a nursing home, and they need to see their loved ones, and their loved ones need to see them. Anything else before we wrap things up? Time to move now, because if we don't allow the visits to expand substantively now in the summer, just think what will happen next winter.
1: That was Dr. Doris Grinspan, Chief Executive Officer of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Ontario courtrooms began reopening this past week with new safety protocols, including a requirement that visitors fill out COVID-19 screening cards. Inside the courtrooms, plexiglass barriers have been installed around the judges area, court clerk desks and at counsel tables, as well as around the jury boxes, though jurors are not expected to return for months. The reopenings are happening despite action by Crown attorneys to seek an injunction to delay returning to courthouses on the grounds they are unsafe during the pandemic. But there is a huge backlog of more than 144,000 cases compared with 116,000 a year ago. On Tuesday, Libby Snymer discussed the issue with criminal defense lawyer Ari Goldkind and Tony LeParco, president of the Ontario Crown Attorneys Association.
2: We uh, put the injunction on hold uh, for the time being because um, right as we were about to uh, file, uh, we were given what I call a document dump. The, uh, assessments, uh, that, uh, were fill- were basically completed by, uh, individuals, uh, hired by the, what's called the recovery secretariat, really, you know, weird sounding name for basically, you know, a, a, group of people put together to try to, uh, to, uh, make sure that the return, uh, to courts was, uh, safe. But, uh, the uh, risk assessments, uh, you know, were done prior to a lot of the, uh, uh, what they call uh, precautionary measures being put up. The uh, other concern was that many of the risk assessors had absolutely no experience in the courts whatsoever. You know, at the end of the day, it's our responsibility as the association to ensure that when people return, everybody, not just assistant crown attorneys, but everybody using the court uh, courts are safe. Uh, with the document dumps that happened, our, an expert that we retained required time to go through that material. And uh, we've been continually uh, sent material since that time. And uh, as a result, uh, we were trying to negotiate uh, uh, some type of, uh, I wouldn't call it a settlement, but uh, an assurance that, uh, uh, that uh, many of the uh, concerns that we had were addressed.
3: Let's... Uh move on to Ari for a minute. Ari, have you been back in court yet?
4: Uh, No, I start my first Superior Court trial on Monday coming up. Uh, I have many friends and colleagues, including many crowns, who are in court today. I've asked for updates from them. I think this is a very interesting issue. It's one of those issues, um, Libby, that I think both sides of the argument, there's probably three here, all have valid points. A lot of times we discuss issues that There's only one right answer, and anybody who doesn't see it that way is not thinking clearly. I think the Crown Attorneys Association makes a lot of very valid points here. Libby, for example, if I was a 62-year-old Crown Attorney in a high-risk group, do I want to be a guinea pig going back to court versus some 23-year-old young whippersnapper like I currently am? Those are very, (laughs) very live issues, and Libby, if you look at the science of this, and I use the term science loosely, we're learning more each day in the last week about HVAC systems and how this is airborne and what it's like being in an indoor building. So there's that issue for Tony, obviously very uh, properly representing his members. If I was a crown attorney, I'd want this fight being fought for me, particularly if I'm in a high-risk group. But then the balancing act, Libby, comes into play from the criminal defense lawyer point of view, which is how do you do this balancing and get the show on the road? And for a whole lot of people stuck in jail, let's forget the people out of custody for a moment, but the people that are stuck in jail, wanting their day in court with the massive backlog, Zoom trials don't seem to be doing anything faster in a hurry. So how do you balance all of those needs with people that are presumed innocent, people that may have very, very good defenses, not slam dunk prosecutions? Do we tell them they've got to wait another three, six, nine months until the virus is gone? Because Libby, I'll answer my I'll end my answer here and go where you wish, which is this is something that on my notion, Libby, we're going to be living with not just for months, but probably longer. And if you're somebody wasting away in a jail where you can't social distance, you have a very good defense to the charges you know, you might look at this situation and go, well, wait a minute, where do I start to count? Where do I fit in here? But it is absolutely Libby a conundrum that I don't think there's a perfect answer to.
1: Criminal defense lawyer Ari Goldkind and Tony Laparco, president of the Ontario Crown Attorneys Association. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Two Toronto hospitals have reached a milestone in the fight against COVID-19. As of July 3rd, both Humber River Hospital and North York General Hospital had no COVID-19 patients in their intensive care units. On Monday, Libby was joined by Dr. Joshua Tepper, president and CEO of North York General Hospital.
7: One thing we've learned about this disease uh, is that people are spending much more time in the ICU than they do with other diseases that typically uh, land people in the ICU. So it's been a, a slow but steady decline. And to be clear, it could change again in uh, in a day, and you know it could change in a couple hours. Uh, but right now, it's a, a good place to be.
3: What is the typical stay in ICU, and what are some of the typical reasons? And and how long are people staying on average with COVID?
7: That's a great question. So a lot of different reasons can land people in the ICU. They could be after major surgery, they could be after a trauma like a car accident, uh or it could be medical reasons, which is probably a good comparison here, uh, which is say pneumonia or major infection uh in, in some other uh body. And often those are a relatively short stay of just a few days when you get other what we'll call medical problems like in pneumonia. Uh but with COVID it's caused by say a bacteria or other viruses. But in this case um we're seeing people in for weeks at a time with a lot more complications, uh, needing things, say, uh, for like dialysis. Uh, so this has been instead of just a handful of days on average, uh, often several weeks. So it's been a dramatic change in our, uh, sort of understanding of a medical or an infectious, um, disease that lands people in the ICU and requires intensive care management. As the, the
3: burden in ICU declined, did you see a change in the demographics of, of the patients? Did they get younger? Uh, did they get older? What, what did you see there?
7: Um, not, not necessarily. What we have seen is an overall decrease, not just in the ICU, but the number of patients in the hospital as a whole. So there were fewer patients in our ICU steadily. There are fewer patients in the rest of the hospital, and there are even fewer patients coming into the emergency room. So, you know, the ICU is sort of the peak, but we've seen a decrease in, in, every, in the presentation in all parts of the hospital, which is really positive.
3: Or maybe it's not so positive if, if people are afraid to come to the hospital with other things like uh, heart attacks.
7: So a couple thoughts on that, and it's a great point. Uh, thank you. So the first is that we have seen our emergency room volumes steadily increase, and we have seen the types of other conditions that we're used to looking after outside of COVID increase as well. So we've seen a a bit of that return. But again, and so I I think we have seen, like I said, a return to a bit more of the baseline, which is, you know, we don't like to see people sick, but if they're sick, we want to see them in the... uh, in, in the emergency room and in the hospital as needed and, and that has been returning. Um, to the second point again, I think we're really talking about the decreasing COVID. So to the degree that I'm seeing fewer COVID patients in our inpatient units, in our ICU and in our eMERGE, that is positive. Um, because it does suggest that the disease burden in our community is is decreasing. And I don't think we have a lot of evidence that people are staying away from hospital because of COVID. Now, to your point, was there a period in time when they were staying away with heart attacks because they were worried about COVID? There is some data to suggest that. And I think you're right. That was very, very worrisome. But fortunately, that seems to be resolving now.
3: Everybody is talking about a second wave. What are the uh, takeaways from your experience so far that you think might help with managing a second wave?
7: You know, a, a few things. First of all is just how fast this virus can move and how we went from sort of no patients in our ICU with uh, infected with COVID to having, you know, basically full uh, within a very short time period. And so, you know, I think the ability to really watch for that uptick and to react very quickly is important. The second thing that I think we've learned more broadly is a bit more about how to prevent this. Uh, and particularly about the role of masks. And so I've been pleased to see many cities and many areas of Ontario uh, move to a a broad masking uh, policy, particularly for indoor areas, um, where it's really, I think we know that it's been helpful. and We've seen that in numerous studies uh, now around the world. So I think that is going to be very, very helpful as well to keep us from seeing those rapid spikes um, and limiting uh, the rate of transmission
1: Dr. Joshua Tepper, President and CEO of North York General Hospital. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Alexis in Markham phoned to talk about how Canada has failed our elders in long-term care, not just during COVID-19 but long before the pandemic.
8: I just feel that the government never made the elderly um, a priority and I believe it was almost a well-orchestrated plan so that they put
9: money over people's lives.
1: Helen in Toronto called about the long-term care visits which she says are extremely restrictive and limited.
9: My visit with my mother was scheduled for last week it got canceled because of the heat wave, which I could have guessed. Uh, when they had their webinar, I was the only one who asked what happens if the weather's not right. I have just called to find out how many people. My mother's in the unit of 25. She's got dementia. And I just spoke to one of the administrators saying, how many people does this involve? Is it just that unit or is it the whole hospital? There are 105 people in the hospital, given that only four are allowed a day. That means it'll be another 25, and well, more than 25, because there's none on weekends, uh, days before I get to see my mother a second time. I haven't seen her the first time yet. It's scheduled for the 14th, which means by Thursday I have to have another COVID test and uh, go through the whole thing, hoping that the heat breaks before uh, the time that I have for my visit.
0: And now, Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great
1: calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Debbie in Guelph, who phoned about the lack of air conditioning in long-term care.
8: The building I worked in was not air-conditioned. They had an, uh, a window one in the uh, dining room area. And the residents perhaps didn't complain about the heat, but they also, you know, honestly didn't realize sometimes at their age or with their mental capacity just how hot it was and how dehydrated they were becoming. We needed to go around and, I mean, I was one that instigated one night, let's hand out glasses of water and every one of those residents guzzled down the water that I handed them. But not only that, it's the staff trying to work in the facility that has no air conditioning. It was so difficult trying to care for the residents. When we were, ourselves were sweltering, trying to lift them, you know, care for them. It was, it was unbelievably hot.
1: That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby Libby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416 367. Nine six three six four one six three six seven nine six three six. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back.
0: The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Paddy, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer Moses Neimer.